would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll read the first 10 verses together this morning. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your help um, and for your patience as we weed through this very intricate theological argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand it, uh, but also to end in the same doxology of praise to Christ, knowing that he is indeed greater than all who have come before him and all who come after. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been keeping up with the latest uh, news in America concerning historical revisionism, it's a term that we use quite often nowadays, uh, then perhaps you've heard of the most recent statue removal in the state of California. Um, at the state capitol in Sacramento about a year ago, a monument of St. Junipero Serra was torn down by protesters in July of 2020. Now, raise your hand if you know who St. Junipero Serra is. That's what I thought. Very important historical figure. Most of us aren't familiar with him, but he was actually called the Apostle of California. And for this reason, even though you don't recognize Serra's name, you certainly would recognize most of the missions that he founded. For instance, have you ever heard of San Diego or San Francisco or about any other word in the California language that starts with San or Santa, most of them were founded by him or by one of his co-workers. In fact, if you think about it, most of the names in California actually have a deep religious heritage based upon the Spanish Catholic influence in that area. For instance, San Francisco is named after St. Francis of Assisi, and Sacramento is named after the Holy Sacrament of the Church. Did you know that? You keep going through the names. Every one of them is religious in nature, except for Hollywood, as expected. <laughs> Hollywood has no religious significance whatsoever. The rest of them do, for the most part. But just this month, uh, the statue of Sarah 
Um, after it had been torn down for a year, the lawmakers in California decided not to put it back up, but instead to replace it with a monument to honor some of the state's native peoples instead. And the reason why is because they have accused him of sponsoring abuse under the mission system, as well as forcing a number of the natives to convert to Catholicism. Now, of course, the Catholic Church is up in arms about this because they just recently canonized him, made him a saint. So now you've got two conflicting views uh, of fighting with one another over this. One is seeking to idolize him, the other one seeking to villainize him. But interestingly enough, they both have quite a bit of Sarah's letters and journals and other original documentation that they can refer to to enter into the argument. Now, where am I going with this? Well, in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews is doing something similar to another historical figure who also is a priest, and he's scrutinizing him very closely and comparing him with someone else, to Father Abraham. And then later, we'll also see that he compares him to Aaron, the high priest. And there's a point behind this, ultimately, which is to point us to Christ. Now, I'll warn you in advance, um, the text that we're looking at this morning is the same text that we were looking at early on in chapter 5, but the writer took a break uh, from his, his argument because if you remember the last three sermons, the first one was, you're dull of hearing and you can't hear what I have to say about this. That was his point uh, three sermons ago, if you will. And then the, the, the text after that had to do with uh, his warning concerning apostasy for those who don't listen well. And then lastly, uh, last week we covered the part of the text that now he's trying to grant them assurance of salvation after scaring them all to death through all of those warning passages. And now he's back to his original point that he was in in chapter 5. Before he said, now this is very difficult what I'm about to say, but because you have not grown up in your faith and still are babes in Christ, you still want the milk and not the meat. So what am I trying to say? This is not going to be an easy sermon. <laughs> this is one you have to chew on. It's not one that you're going to be able to drink out of a bottle. And so you have to pay very careful attention today because he's making a, a very intricate, intricate argument uh, but he, again, is pointing us ultimately to the supremacy of Christ, which, again, is the theme of the whole book, right? The whole book of Hebrews is why Jesus is greater, why Jesus is superior to everything and everyone that came before him. And so he's continuing to do that. So thus far in our, in our study of Hebrews, we found that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than Joshua, and on and on. But ultimately, his main comparison that he wants to make throughout the whole book, is Jesus is greater than Aaron the high priest. And he wants to make that for this very reason. There are some in the church, to whom he's writing, who have already left the church and have gone back to Judaism, back to the old priesthood. And he's trying to help them understand that that is anathema. You can't do that because you would be crucifying the Lord Jesus all over again if you were to leave Christ and go back to the old ways because all of the old ways pointed to Christ, pointed to his priesthood. And so that's, that's sort of his argument. But interestingly, he doesn't immediately compare Jesus and Aaron in our text. Rather, he compares Melchizedek and Abraham. And he has a reason for that, but we're going we're gonna to look at that. But, but just a little bit of background information on Melchizedek before we get started. And I can say it's just a little bit because we don't have a whole lot about him. He's a very mysterious figure. We don't really uh, 
have much information about him. There's only two places in Scripture that even mention his name in the Old Testament, the first being Genesis 14 that we just read. And then a uh, second passage, which is the one that the writer of Hebrews keeps quoting throughout the book of Hebrews, which is Psalm 110. And he's quoting that passage to explain the order of Melchizedek and the purpose behind his ministry and how that points to Christ. But until we get to the book of Hebrews, those are the only two times that are mentioned. So in Psalm 110, verse 4, David says this a thousand years after Melchizedek was mentioned in Genesis. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that, speaking of the coming king, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's very strange language because he's talking about a king who is coming, who say, whom he says is a priest forever. Now, again, if you know the background to priesthood in the Old Testament, it was always separated. The offices were never together in one person. You could not be a king and a priest but now this promise is being made of the Messiah who is to come, who not only is a king, but who is a priest forever. Now, how do we get that? He says it's based upon the order of Melchizedek. So now we have to go back and look at that passage in Melchizedek, which explains some of these uh, intricacies. So in chapter 14 of the text we read earlier, again in summary, there were four Mesopotamian kings from the east who are coming to conquer five Canaanite kings, if you will, and to take all their possessions and also take their people as well. Now, out of those five Canaanite kings, two of them are the kings of Solomon and Gomorrah. You're familiar with those, right? Uh, when they go into battle, the Mesopotamian kings conquer the Canaanite kings, take their people and their possessions. And if you remember, Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, was a part of the kingdom of Sodom. And so he is kidnapped, if you will, or taken by the spoil of war, along with his family and all of their stuff. And Abraham hears about this, and you're like, how great is Abraham? All of a sudden, you see this guy that you thought was just a sheep herder, has 318 trained men in his household who are ready to go out to battle, and they kick butt. They take out all four of these kings from the east, completely demolish them, slaughter them, the text says, and then take all their stuff back, all the people, all of their possessions. And so then when Abraham, in the text that David read earlier, Abraham returns from battle and two kings come to meet him, one of them being the king of Sodom, his name is Bera. We sort of expect him to come because all of his stuff was taken and all of his people were taken as well and certainly with uh, Lot being one of them. But then there's another king that also shows up, Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. And you're not expecting him because he's not mentioned as one of the kings that had lost their property. In fact, we have no idea why he's even here. The text doesn't say. But nevertheless, he's there. And, uh, and Abraham interacts with them. Now, strangely, in addition to the fact that this king who comes out of nowhere is talking with Abraham and, and blessing him, is the fact that Abraham treats this strange figure with great respect and enters into a close relationship with him, but yet wants nothing to do with the king of Sodom. Anything the king of Sodom wants to give him, he's like, no, I don't want anything from your hands because anything that you give me, you'll say later on that the Sodomites were the one who made you so prosperous and, and successful. And so there's a big difference between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. The king of Salem is the one that Melchizedek is. So 
that's all recorded that we have about him until we get to the Psalm 110. And then finally, so there's a thousand years between the time that Genesis 14 occurs and the time that David writes his prophecy of Psalm 110. And now another thousand years later, so 3,000 years, now the writer of Hebrews is explaining all of this to us. Why is this here and what's the point of it? And it's all the point is to Christ. So, who is this mysterious king priest? Well, some have actually tried to say that he was Shem. You remember Shem? Shem was actually one of the sons of, of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So some have tried to say that, that Melchizedek was actually another name for Shem and that uh, being the great ancestor of Abraham, who was still living because they lived a long time back then, uh, that that's why Abraham treats him with so much respect. But there's no evidence for that, so we, but it's, it's a far-fetched theory. Some others have said that he's an angel or some other celestial being and, uh, you know, tried to uh, buy into that uh, uh, theory. But again, verse 4 says very plainly that he's a man and that he's a great man. He's not an angel. He's not some sort of celestial creature. Uh, and, then, and then many others, and the more prominent one that a lot of people hold to is that, that it's some sort of Christophany or a pre-incarnate form of Christ. Uh, in fact, I've had some people have asked me that already. And, and again, I'd say, well, look back at the text in verse 3. It says that he resembles the Son of God, but that he's not the Son of God. So he's not meant to be a pre-incarnate form of Christ, but rather a model that points us to Christ. So the, the author of Hebrews is not uh, you know, trying to point out some heavenly being. He's just pointing out a regular man, but pointing out something peculiar about how he's recorded in Scripture and how that is a model for us later to understand who Christ is. Now, to understand this, there's a word that I'm going to use that might help you, might hinder you in paying attention today. I hope it doesn't. Um, there's a difference between what's called allegory and typology. Most of you are probably familiar with allegory. Allegory is sort of a, uh, an interpretation of a story, and usually it's not necessarily a true story, and, and as you're reading it, there's some deeper meaning behind it that really has nothing to do necessarily with the original story, but that you're pulling another meaning out of it, right? Uh, some people try to interpret Scripture allegorically and come to all sorts of weird stuff. Like, you know, if there are five stones on the ground, the first stone represents Jesus, the second stone represents the church. They're just making up stuff, right? Um, in other words, the writer of Hebrews is not doing that. That's what I want you to see, first of all, that although this might be, seem strange as an argument to us, it's not a fanciful interpretation. He's using not allegory, but rather what's called typology. And a typo typology is going from an, a type to an anti-type. And we see this again and again in Scripture, where something, it can either be a story, it could be a, an event, it could be a figure, a person, uh, an object of some kind that points to something in the New Testament, that points to Christ, uh, and, and, and it's always true. It's always a real person, a real object, a real story. But then somehow it is, uh, it's magnified, it's augmented in pointing to something even greater in Christ. For example, um, sometimes Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam. Adam is a type that points to the antitype who is Christ. In the same way, the Passover lamb in the Old Testament is a type that points to the antitype who is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the same way in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is a type that points to later on the Son of God, the Word of God, dwelling in our midst. Literally, John 1 says that he tabernacles amongst us. 
He is the tabernacle of God. Every piece of furniture, if I had time to explain it all to you, it's fabulous. Every piece of furniture in the tabernacle points to Christ. When he talks about the table, show that I am the bread of life, the lampstand, I am the light of the world, all of this points to Christ, you see. Well, in the same way, he's saying that Melchizedek is a type that points to Christ as the antitype. He's not a Christophany of Christ. He's just merely a normal man who ultimately points us to Christ in the same way that David would. That David would point us to the son of David, right? So that's the point. I, I want you to understand that so you can understand his, his argument here. But that's his desire to, for us to see, first of all, how great Melchizedek was. As strange and as mysterious as he is, how great he was, so we can see how even greater Christ is. All right? So, but to do that, he has to compare him to Abraham. Melchizedek is being compared to Abraham, which is a hard task to accomplish because Abraham, in the mind of the Jews, was the man. You don't get any better than Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. Abraham is the, the progenitor of the entire race of Jews. He is the father of all the promises that they've ever received. Everything that they have and everything that they are comes from Abraham. And yet, this writer of Hebrews is trying to help those who have come from a Jewish background to understand there's actually someone in the Old Testament who's greater than Abraham. And it's the strange, mysterious figure, Melchizedek. You're like, well, how could that possibly be? How could he be greater than Abraham? Well, there are two reasons that are given for that. These are not the main two reasons. I'm going to get to my three points. Ten minutes from now, okay? But I'm ha this is all background material to help you to understand what, what his argument is, right? So there, there are two reasons that he says Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. The first has to do with the benediction that Melchizedek pronounces upon Abraham. And the second has to do with the contribution that he receives from Abraham. So the very fact that Melchizedek blesses Abraham proves his superiority over Abraham. This is the main point. In verse 7, the author of Hebrews says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, it's, it's important to point out uh, that our concept of blessing today is quite different than the Old Testament concept of blessing. We might say, oh, bless you, brother. Uh, and what we mean by that is, you know, well wishes to you in the name of Christ. We hope that everything goes well, you know, in that sense. When the Old Testament, when someone blessed someone, they weren't merely declaring, you know, sort of a blessing upon someone, but they were conferring a gift, a benefit, a favor of God upon another person. So by the very fact that they could confer that upon someone else implied that they had something in their storehouse, if you will, to give to someone else, and it always implied that the greater was blessing the lesser. Make sense? And so, somehow, Melchizedek has blessings from God to give to Abraham, which should surprise us for this reason. The very promise that is given to Abraham is that through Abraham, all the peoples of the world would be blessed through him. And yet we see someone else is blessing Abraham. Abraham is not blessing Melchizedek. Melchizedek is blessing him, which implies, again, that even though Abraham would be used as a figure to bless all the nations of the world, there's someone greater than him who has, in fact, blessed him. In the same way, he also uh, pronounces this benediction. He also receives a contribution from Abraham. Again, although the king of Sodom is 
is uh, willing to allow Abraham to keep the spoils of war, if you will, including the original possessions of the Sodomites, Abraham gives him back everything. He doesn't want to have anything to do with the king of Sodom, doesn't want to receive anything of his man, does not respect the man. On the other hand, Abraham gives a tenth of all of the spoils of war, everything that he's won back from these kings that he's conquered. He gives a tenth of all of it to Melchizedek, which should surprise you given the fact that none of it belonged to him. None of it. He didn't have a, a, a foot in the battle. It wasn't his. And yet, strangely, Abraham's giving him a tenth of everything that he has gained. Now, this, again, should surprise you given the fact that uh, even the tithe itself was an aspect of subjection to someone else. So if you gave a tithe to someone else, this was normally sort of a kingly, regal sort of a thing to do, that you're either giving it to God as your king through the priest, or you're tithing because you recognize some king is having authority over you. So by the fact that Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek freely, he's acknowledging that somehow this king, who has no relationship seemingly to Israel, has authority over Abraham. This is a huge point that the author of Hebrews is making, that there's someone who has greater authority than Abraham. And so he goes on with the argument, but then we're meant to see that this comparison between Abraham and Melchizedek is meant to point us to the relationship between Aaron and Christ. You follow me? It's one step he keeps going along the way here. Well, what you have to understand is Aaron is a descendant of Abraham through Levi. If you remember, Levi is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes uh, under Jacob, under Abraham. So basically, Aaron and all of his descendants who were priests are all descendants of Abraham, right? You following along genealogically here? Um, but on the other hand, Jesus is not related in any way to Melchizedek. That's not the relationship. Rather, it says Jesus is of the same order of priesthood as Melchizedek, and he'll explain that in a minute, but basically it's, they're similar in regard to how they function as priests, whereas Aaron is a descendant of Abraham. So what Abraham does to Melchizedek affects what Aaron is in relationship to Christ. Now, here are my three points. You ready? Finally? All right. Three reasons why Christ is greater than Aaron as priest. Number one, he has greater titles conferred upon him. Number two, he has greater tribute given to him. And number three, he has greater terms of service in God's holy temple. I'll, I'll repeat those as we go along. First, like Melchizedek, Jesus has greater titles conferred upon him than Aaron. Aaron's name means exalted one. That's a pretty good name, right? Exalted one. And yet, we see as a descendant of Abraham, he's, he's a father of all the priests who are to come. But Mel Melchizedek's name is even more exalted than Aaron's. For not only is he a priest of the most high God, he's also a king in God's place. The latter part of verse 2 in our text, the author of Hebrews gives us the, the, the etymological meaning of Melchizedek's name as well as the significance of his kingdom. So the, the author says of Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, Melchizedek comes from two root, root words, 
We have Melech, which means king, and Zadok, which means righteousness or justice. So he is the king of righteousness, the, the just king, if you will. And then in addition to that, he's also talking about the, the town that he, or the, the, the area that he's the king over, and he says he's the king of Salem. Again, Hebrew, the, the root word for Salem is the word shalom. And what does shalom mean? Peace. He's the king over peace. So he is this righteous, just king who is, a, who is the king over a kingdom of peace. That's a great title, is it not? Uh, he, he, he pretty much has all of this, but all of this is meant to point us to Christ, who is the same kind of king. He is a king of righteousness who reigns over a kingdom of, of peace. In fact, we see this as it's developed further on throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You're familiar with the birth of Christ being prophesied. And what is he called? The Prince of Peace. And we see all throughout Scripture over and over again, 1 John 2, 1, the example of it. The Son of God is revealed to be Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Over and over again throughout Scripture, you see Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the King of Peace. In fact, uh, one Psalm, Psalm 85, 10, puts those two together, and, and I, I love the way it's put. It says literally that in, in that reign, righteousness and peace kiss each other. The righteousness of God is not bringing condemnation upon the sinner, but is bringing peace to the sinner through some sort of sacrifice because the king is also a priest. Very, very important. Uh, in fact, uh, we see not only does he give righteousness, not only is he righteous and is he a king of peace, but he gives righteousness, he gives peace to his subjects. Again, as Jesus leaves uh, this world after he has uh, been resurrected and is about to ascend up into heaven, he says in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because he's the king of righteousness who reigns over a realm of peace. You can have peace because he's the king of peace. There's another passage in the Old Testament. Uh, again, this is the meat. You've got to chew on it today. Okay, So this is not going to be easy application today. Chew on it. If you've never read Zechariah, it's a very interesting book. But there's a passage in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Listen to what the prophet says about the coming Messiah, if you will. He's, he actually goes to the house of the priest named Josiah and takes a crown and puts it on the head of a priest, which again would never be done in Israel because those two offices are always separated. But yet he's doing it as a prophecy showing what will happen in the future when the Messiah comes. The priest becomes a king. The king becomes a priest. Literally, he sa this is his prophecy, Zechariah chapter 6. He says, thus says the Lord, behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So again, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm crowning a king, but he is a priest, and it's a, it's a reign of peace. Finally, the subjects can be at peace. It's because Jesus serves as both priest and king that he can give us righteousness and peace. He's able to do both. This king priest is able to do that through his body and blood, with, which if you remember, how does Melchizedek bless Abraham? 
He pronounces a blessing upon him, but it's ultimately through giving him these two gifts of the bread and the wine. He's showing a demonstration of what's going to take place in the future that this bread and wine is going to represent a sacrifice. I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to give you peace through this sacrifice who is to come. Melchizedek is offering that to Abraham. Abraham receives it freely. Now, that's the first thing. Uh, the Christ is greater than Aaron because he has greater titles than Aaron. Then secondly, uh, like Melchizedek, Jesus also has greater tribute that's given to him than Aaron ever received. Now, it's true that Aaron received tribute from the Israelites regularly. Aaron and all of his sons all received a tithe. They all benefited from the tithe. That's how they lived. Um, but what we're also told is that that tithe was demanded by the law of God. They had to give it. In fact, uh, for those of you who are reading on in our book of Numbers, uh, a couple weeks from now, chapter 18 is when it explains this law of how and why the, the uh, Aaronic priesthood is able to get uh, their survival. It's through the means of the tithe. But the difference here is Melchizedek is not demanding a tithe. There's no law given that says that Abraham has to do it. Abraham gives it to him freely. So immediately you see he's superior over the Aaronic priesthood because he's not demanding a tithe. He gets it freely. And the author of Hebrews magnifies that argument by then pointing to the concept of the ancestor being within the loins, uh, uh, excuse me, the, 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 the progeny being within the loins of the ancestor. In other words, he's saying, have I lost you yet? He's not saying that, I'm saying that. It's meaty. You've got to chew on it. Um, <laughs> he's saying in, in verses 9 and 10, let me read it to you. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And you're like, what? <laughs> Basically, he's saying that because Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, in a sense, Aaron gave a tithe. To Melchizedek, pointing that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. His priesthood is greater than Aaron's. In fact, it's the same way. We were in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. Why are we guilty of sin? Because what he did affects us too. In the same way that what Abraham, what Aaron does, what Abraham does, Aaron, I'm going to get it right with the two A's. What Abraham does, Aaron did through him, if you will. The same way when David and Goliath are fighting. It's the same concept, this headship issue. Do you remember when David and Goliath were fighting? Do you remember the rule of how they determined who won the war? If David won the battle, all of Israel killed the Philistines. They win. They, they've lost the battle entirely. The Philistines have. It's the same way. That headship concept is constant throughout Scripture. We see that. We may not like it because we're individualistic Americans, but that is how it works uh, according to God. Well, in the same manner, Jesus is worthy of more honor than Aaron because he receives greater tribute than Aaron. First of all, he doesn't just receive tribute from the Jews. He receives tribute from all the nations of the world. Every tribe, every tongue brings their gifts unto Christ. And we see even evidence of that early on in the birth narratives when we see these three, or however many magi there were that were coming and offering their gifts unto Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that all the nations would come and give their offerings unto God, give their tribute unto God. They're giving their tribute unto Christ. And notice, though, 
that they do it freely, cheerfully, gratefully. Not because Jesus needs money in order to survive on our provisions, but simply because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of our offering. He's worthy of our tribute. If there's anyone that's worthy of tribute, it's Christ. And so he's more, he's greater, he's, more, he's superior because of, of that. Of course, the Lord Jesus doesn't need any of these things, but we, we give it because we know that his name is above everything. At, at his name, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we freely give our tribute to him in that regard. But then third, in addition to the greater titles and the greater tribute, like Melchizedek, the Lord also is greater than Aaron because of the greater terms of service in the Holy Temple. Now this is where the argument gets even a little more strange because now he's making his argument from silence rather than from what the Scripture explicitly says. Now where am I going with this? Um, you're familiar with the book of Genesis? You've read it before, seen it at least, right? Um, the book of Genesis is structured entirely around genealogies. There are 12 genealogies in the book of Genesis. Each one will connect every single person in the book to someone else. There's a genealogy of Adam and Seth, and you keep going. There's even genealogies for Cain and Ishmael and Esau. In addition to all the godly seed, everyone is connected to a genealogy except for one person, Melchizedek. He purposely has no genealogy. There's nothing in the book that says he was born, nothing in the book that said he died, there's nothing in the book that said he came from so-and-so. A really strange thing. As if Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, purposely left all that information out to point us to something who was to come. So again, a type that would point us to the anti-type. He's not saying that Melchizedek is some angelic person who came from some other world. He was a normal man, but it wasn't recorded of his birth and his death to show that the call upon his life as a priest was not because of a bloodline like Aaron's, but because of a direct call from God. And so we see in Scripture here that, again, Melchizedek is the model. But, I mean, even, even Enoch, think about it. Enoch, who walked with God and was no more, even he had a birth narrative. He was descended from so-and-so and descended from so-and-so, but not Melchizedek. Very strange. And so he's saying in verse 3 then, notice back there in the text, he says, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, again, here's the issue. So every priest who served in the tabernacle and later in the temple, they could only serve for utmost of 30 years. And then they either were forced to retire or they could help guard the temple, but they couldn't go into the temple anymore. Or they died because they were weak and mortal men. They never were able to save you. They all eventually died themselves, right? So they, they, they were meant to be succeeded by someone else. So, but what he's saying by Melchizedek, by not having a genealogy, by not having a birth, by not having a death, it appears as if Melchizedek continued to be a priest ongoing, right? But not really, because that's not his point. But he's saying it appears as if this order is ongoing. And so now he's comparing Jesus' priesthood as a perpetual priesthood that never has an end. And this is really important. As much as it's meaty to chew on, think of it. We have the Lord's table 
behind me here. The fact that upwards of thousands of years later, he's still laying out on the table bread and wine for you to take because he's a priest forever. If he were to have died, <laughs> there would be no more Lord's Supper. But because he's been raised to life and lives forever and continues to intercede on our behalf, continues to be behind the veil of the curtain in the Holy Temple as our forerunner, as the assurance of our place there, he gives us this sign to reassure us again and again and again, I've done it all for you. I've laid down my life for you. I've won righteousness for you. I've made righteousness and peace kiss for you so that you can know that you are accepted by God. You see that? Just meditate upon that for now because he's going to continue on next week. Hold that thought. Same channel, same time. We'll come back. But let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to help us to meditate upon these things. Uh, not, not let them come in one ear and out the other and then forget what we've read and forget what we've heard. Lord, help us not to be that inconsistent man that James speaks of. Help us not to be the one who, who only wants to drink the milk and never chew upon the meat. Lord, help us not to be uh, immature in our faith in that way. Lord, we, we pray that we would indeed rejoice in these truths. Give thanks to you, O Lord, that you've given us a priest who never dies, a priest who's also a king and who can assure us of a righteous reign that when we pray to you, that you can give us a peace that passes understanding because you are the one who ensures that peace by overcoming all of our enemies, even the enemy of sin and death. Father, we pray that our trust would be in Christ, that we would see, and indeed, that he's greater and superior to anything that ever came before and will ever come after. Lord, help us to trust in his name. We pray in Christ.